I want to thank everyone for your continued support of Between the Sheets. As we wrap up season two here with Ashley Birch's interview, just wanted to let you know there is some discussion about drug addiction in this episode. And if you need help or someone you know needs help, you can reach out. There's 1-800-662-HELP-4357 or samhsa.gov where you can find resources, helplines, people to walk you through or your loved ones through addiction. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Enjoy this conversation with Ashley Birch. Ashley Birch took some time out of her insanely busy schedule to sit down for a conversation with me about growing up an indoor kid, her writing process, voice acting, and the connection her and I share to this country's opiate epidemic. Ashley is a brave, honest, soulful person, and we were able to dig really deep. Enjoy. Ashley Birch. Ryan Foster. Hello. Ryan W. Foster? I don't care. What does the W stand for? Do you want to do you not want to reveal that? You don't have to. Wayne. No, really? Yeah. That's it's great. That's my middle name. The one I go by now. Mm-hmm. And more questions, Your Honor. Wow. What do you think? Oh, that's delightful. It's a naked and famous. It's delicious. It's delicious, right? It's great. You asked for Mezcal. I, I love was so mezcal. excited because mm-hmm. I too love Mezcal. We haven't had a Mezcal drink on the show. Perfect. I talked to my bartender friends about what we should make for you, and they. Uh, I went to New York, and they had me try this, and I was like, "That's it. It's so good. That's it. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Yellow chartreuse, aperol, lime juice, mezcal. And it's so not, easy to make at home, and it's not too sweet. Which not too I sweet, not too strong. Love. And shaken, which I love shaken drinks. Shaken. So this is actually this is the ideal drink for me. Served in a chilled glass. So lovely. What if we swapped haircuts? Because I feel like you would be great <laughs> with this haircut. I actually feel like I would actually like that haircut, I think. You think so? It's very yeah. easy to maintain. It takes about an hour a day. <laughs> um, you grew up in Phoenix, correct? Mm-hmm. Or you were born there? Born and raised, yeah. What's Phoenix like? I spent a little bit of time there. The way I describe Phoenix is that it's like one large tire store. Mm. It's just an endless... The way that you feel in a tire store is the way the Phoenix feels. It smells With, like rubber. Smells like rubber. You're like, ah. <laughs> it's just that. <laughs> <sighs> you get out of the car in Phoenix, you're like, ah, I'm in Phoenix. I guess I have to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but lots of um, lots of taco places with a slightly different name. So like Philbertos, Julioberto's. Mm-hmm. Roberto's mm-hmm. scattered about. Yeah, Bertos. Um, Bertos. Just Bertos. <laughs> toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. toes. Uh, no, toes. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and it's very hot, so yeah. you stay in, inside and you play video games all day, basically. It's kind of like people who grew up in the Midwest, in you know, totally, or in Ohio in the middle of January. You, you know, what else are you gonna do? You can't go anywhere. My parents were also very protective, overly protective. So there wasn't really like a go, go outside and, you know, go walk to your friend's house. And they were like convinced if I walked even like a 10 minute route that I would get scooped. Really? Yeah. Kidnapped, murdered, whatever. Yeah. The whole, the whole nine, the whole nine yards. (laughs) My parents were like, "Uh, just go outside and come back tomorrow. (laughs) You know, like just go play, come back smelling like dirt. I don't care. I do really wonder what my life would be like if I had had that as a, you know, I mean, I'm happy. I'm, I'm very grateful for all the things that I do have now. And I wonder if, because everything in my fucking career has come from playing video games. Everything. So That's true. It's really weird. It's kind of all everything. sort of come out of that. Yeah. 
So ultimately ended up great. Yeah. But um, I mean, video games and I guess probably writing fan fiction because I started writing. Yeah. What were the first things you would want to write fan fiction about? Sailor Moon. Yep. But I wouldn't have any action lines. So it would just be dialogue. Okay. Yeah. 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 So there was a lot of exposition, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, Final Fantasy. Uh... <laughs> Here we go. Let's go. Did you write some all that fanfic or something? No, I uh, I wrote a fanfic about Batman Beyond. You did? Yes, about, um, is his name Terry, the dude that sure. is the new Batman? I think so, yeah. Will Friedle's going to murder me. Because <laughs> that's his character. Is, did he play? Him, yeah. Oh, I feel like I shouldn't his tell you this. His name's Jerry. Then. I think it's Jerry. <laughs> Gerald. It's, it's definitely Gerald. Gerald. <laughs> but I wrote, uh, he has. You wrote a, Batman Beyond fan Yes, in which nice Terry, level. Jerry, Gerald has cancer. I wrote that. <laughs> I wrote, Wait, why? I don't know. But old, I don't know. Old Batman is already on his way I out. Know. You're going to kill what? off new I don't Batman? know. I really can't. There's no justification. I didn't even know anyone that had cancer. I just thought, ooh. The viewers on fanfiction.net are going to eat this up. So I. <laughs> Were you uploading this stuff? Oh, absolutely. I wrote Jurassic Park fanfic. Can you please tell me what it was about? <laughs> I don't remember. You don't? But I do remember I read the first book in The Lost World before I saw the movies. Uh-huh. I didn't get to see the movies till later because I was very, uh, my parents were very conservative and, you know, even a PG-13 movie was sometimes off limits. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that level. And uh, so I read the books and then I was like, oh man, I want there to be a third book. So I kind of just wrote a third, like, Jurassic Park book. How long is it? Oh, it's not long. It's like 20 pages of... <laughs> I don't have it anymore. It was, you know, oh, I, was like I wish you did. 13 years old, but yeah. That's amazing. Fanfic's fun because it's, it's a great. it's kind of an entry into because you obviously can't, went on to be a writer. Yeah. And it's an exercise. It absolutely is. It's an exercise. It totally is. Yeah. There's nothing, there's uh, people shit all over it because it can be too corny or too sexy or too whatever. Right, but yeah. so can regular movies and so yeah. can regular TV shows and books. They yeah. can all be too whatever. And so much of what we're making now is fan fiction fucking anyway. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, all the exactly. Marvel movies are fan fiction. The new Star Wars right? movies are, are Star Wars are is fan fanfic. fiction. Yeah. I mean, writing for Adventure Time felt like writing fan fiction. Because you were show. already a fan. I was already a fan. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great exercise, I think. First thing you remember really sitting down to write would be like fan fiction. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then I did that for a long time, and I also played um, forum RPGs. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was you know some amount of writing involved in that. Yeah, but yeah, it was all through shit like that. What kind of a student were you in school? God, annoyingly, I was such a good student, and you there's were? no yeah. There's it's no, always a toss up. It's there's no reason for it. That's well, what makes me yeah. so mad about it. Yeah. I would get so stressed out. I like had to be straight A. And uh, it mattered n- not at all. Was there pressure from your folks from my mom, to do yeah. well? From mm-hmm. your mom? Yeah. Yeah. That's usually the way it goes. And your mom is? Uh, Thai. Thai. Thai right. and East Indian. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So she that's has. That's how you ended up with such amazing hair. Uh, so she uh, she fulfills that stereotype of, um, of being, <laughs> yeah. putting way too much academic pressure on her children. Yeah. When it came time for college and stuff. Yeah. What were you thinking at the end of high school? I had an existential crisis at the end of high school. Really? What were you, what, what happened there when you, when you graduated and you're like, this is, this is that, that crossroads of my life where uh-huh. it's not that what I'm pursuing right now is going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, but you want to have a direction. Did you have a direction? I felt like point? I had to go to college. It didn't even feel like, it actually didn't even feel like a crossroads because it was something 
my parents had talked about forever. And I think it was because there was a situation in which my dad was up for a promotion. And it was between him and someone with a college degree and he didn't have one. Mm. So I think that really stuck in both my parents' minds. And they talked constantly about like, whatever you want to do, we support you, but you have to go to college first. We want you to have opportunities. That, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So it felt like something I had to do. Um, but the main crossroads was that I didn't want to stay in Arizona anymore. Um, and it was back when ASU was just handing out full rides. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you get one and you uh -huh. get one and you get one, which is insane to think about. And my brother took that route and ended up saving a bunch of money. So that was great for him. Mm. Um, but I just couldn't fathom staying in Arizona for more time. And I knew I wanted to try to do voiceover. So my, Is that from your love of video games? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Specifically playing Metal Gear Solid, I think was the first fully voiced video game that I had played. Mm. And Kojima did that thing where he would be like, Solid Snake, David Hayter. And I was like, who's David Hayter? And yeah. then I looked it up and I was yeah. like, oh my God. It was the first time it clicked where I was like, people voice these characters. Right. I want to do that. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to do that. My friend, uh, my very good friend, Justin, who helps, he like does all the important stuff on Hey Ash. Mm -hmm. His mom is a saint and was just helping a bunch of his friends with college stuff because she just knew a lot about it. And so she was, she actually helped me the most with like my application and the essays and to figure out where to go. And we had, I ended up going to a liberal arts school because they gave out more scholarships than state schools, but it's just the amount of money you're looking at. Yeah. And when you have like this free ride over here mm -hmm. but in this place that you don't want to be in anymore that you feel like I felt like if I came here that I would actually be able to like do something do something yeah so that was the main scary thing and my parents were like not into the idea of me spending that much money which makes sense like now I'm like <laughs> I'm so in the camp of like don't go to college don't do it Student it's too loans. much money I know I know but like it, it just totally depends yeah but that was my main thing which I was like am I really going to spend this much fucking money mm -hmm. and I did and you um, came out here? And I came out here. Went to Occidental College. Our only claim to fame really is that I think Ben Affleck went there and almost immediately left. And Barack Obama went there and then almost immediately left. Really? So we have a lot of exodus. Is the cafeteria really bad? Is that what? I don't know what it is. I, I mean, it was, I enjoyed my time there once I found my folks, once mm -hmm. I found my people. And I think that's just the case anywhere. But I didn't yeah. have like, I wasn't like rip roaring. I didn't have like a really crazy college experience. It was like, I think I came expecting like. I can tell by the fact you said rip roaring. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have one of those rip roaring. <laughs> I did this. Can we know that I did this? <laughs> I did. I noted that. I noted Who that. Who does this apart from 70 year old like Jewish men? No uh, one. <laughs> game show hosts, I think. <laughs> hey, you win. Um... Yeah, so I think I wanted to I wanted to go and like have an academic. I really I was like the fucking nerd one. I wanted to go and have like an academic experience. You're People like, wanted to get drunk and get laid because of course they did. Of course they did. But you wanted um, to have a study party. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to learn. They wanted to learn. What was moving to LA like after? Because you had you lived anywhere else besides Phoenix and no, then straight to LA. I went straight from Phoenix to LA. It can be a little bit of a culture shock. I was re it was really hard for me. Um, in what ways? Well, because I was an indoor kid, and I, again, my parents were very protective. Mm -hmm. So I just had not never strayed very far from home. I have like anxiety, like capital A, you know, diagnosed anxiety or yeah. whatever. And I had my first panic attack in college because I was just, it was just so much transi transition all at once. Everyone's. Like 
school was so much harder than I thought it was going to be because I realized in retrospect, I was fucking coasting through high school. Like so much of it, I feel like, was does the teacher like you? Mm. And do they feel like you put in enough effort? But in college, they were like, no, you actually have to like make an argument and like have logic and cite things. So I got my first, <laughs> boo-hoo, I got my first C. Oh, and wow. I was like, but to me, like um, academic achievement was linked with like self-worth. Yes. So getting a C was like, you're garbage. Mm -hmm. So I had a, yeah, and, and I didn't, I didn't know anyone. I didn't really relate to anyone yet. I, I didn't, I just wasn't clicking with anyone. And I'd never lived on my own before. And I was in a new city and I didn't have a car at the time. So I couldn't really get around anywhere. Mm -hmm. And even getting around places because LA traffic is like on a whole other level. It's insane. Yeah. Um, so it was just a lot of transition and it was really, really hard for me for like a year probably, maybe a little bit more. And then I joined the school newspaper. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> as, as a contributor, as a uh, fashion expert? Uh, the great hair column. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah, as, um, I think I became the editor of the opinion section because no one wanted to work for the Occidental Weekly. Um, Why? It's just a school paper. Nobody it's just cares. School paper. We didn't even have a journalism degree, so no one was mm. serious about it, and it was not a good paper. Yeah, yeah. I became editor in chief eventually, and I treat. I was. I worked really hard, but it wasn't a good paper. Yeah, <laughs> but it was practice, so fun. probably. Yeah, yeah. It, was it was good. It was like, it was good practice being, you know, managing people, mm -hmm. and I. And then I found my people there. I feel like when I clicked with LA mm -hmm. was when I found my people. I yes. think that's what you need here. Yeah. You need to, everyone is trying to make it yeah. in whatever form that looks like for them. Right. Um, someone that moves here to be a costumer, someone that moves here to be a writer, an actor, everyone's trying to get paid to do what they love. Mm -hmm. And that individual journey does not lend itself often to rich, long-lasting, right. deep relationships. Right. And when you find those it can be the the moment of change. It can be the moment of okay, yeah. maybe I can maybe I can survive this wasteland. Absolutely, I don't think you can do it without that. Yeah. I don't I don't know how you could do it. Yeah, we as humans we need each other to survive and to evolve and to figure out what we're doing anyway. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming out here to work in such a competitive field or industry or series of industries, right? You need allies. You need friends. Yeah. You need people to tell you, to call you on your bullshit. Yes. When you were writing for an editor-in-chief for the newspaper uh -huh. for Occidental College, were you doing any other writing on the side? Were you were you thinking, I want to pursue this? Or was it, I mean, because you, you right. ended up being an actor and a writer. Right. Um, your love of VO comes from video games, as mm -hmm. you said. How did that transition end up happening to where you went, I'm, I'm going to pursue this? Um... I think, well, originally I wanted to be, when I was really young, I wanted to be a singer. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be a singer. And then I, in eighth grade, was auditioning for the class musical. And to do that, you had to act, basically. And so our teacher, she had us audition in front of ev literally everyone else, which I still can't tell if it was cruel or brilliant or both. I don't know. Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe I'm getting anxiety thinking about having to do that. So I... I was like, well, singing, I'm good, but I had never acted before in my life. But mm. literally getting up, and I was stuttering through it. But even still, there was some weird thing that, like, came online in my brain where I was like, I like this. And I think I actually, despite all of the nervous energy that I had, 
there's something there. Mm. And that was when the switch happened. Wow. And I think that plus, I think I replayed Metal Gear Solid. And I was like, this this confluence of things is what I want to do. Um, yeah. But writing, I didn't even consider. I think it was a, I honestly think it was a, partially a gender thing where I, in my head I was like, I hadn't seen it. Um, modeled anywhere. Mm. Like you see female actors all over the place, but I had never even fucking heard of a, a female, female writer. writer so yeah. I was like, that's just not something that <clears throat> I can do. Even though I'd been writing fan fiction and at that point I'd been writing Hey Ash, I was still like, I only started writing Hey Ash, I think in our second season. And I was still always, ner- I couldn't look at something on my own and go, this is good enough. I had to like send it to Anthony and Justin and get approval. Mm. So it wasn't until Adventure Time, I think, actually. Kent Osborne, who was the head writer and the voice director, because I had done a, a voice on Adventure Time, and Kent and I had become friends. Penn Ward left, and they were looking for an, a person to, to fill in in the writer's room to take that role. Not not as Penn Ward, but as a writer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, yeah. And he was like, do you want to come in and test? That was like the first time, which is pretty high stakes, Mother. It is, it. yeah. That's pretty <laughs> awesome, yeah. Um, and then getting that job, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, maybe this is something I can do, but I really didn't think that it was even viable, a viable path for me. Yeah, it's, it is rare in this town that you hear about female writers that are, I, I don't want to say worth mentioning because I'm not their worth, but I mean like that actually make it into the yeah. mentions. You which go, I think it's changing a lot now, which I think is so amazing and, and wild. Like I know, I know so many female writers now and so many hit shows that are coming out are like famously female run female and showrunners, yeah, female writers, female yeah. writers, the, the amount that broad city alone has done, you know <laughs> what I mean? City, I love broad, broad city. city. So much. Uh, it's yeah. so good. But the amount that yeah. just that show alone has done mm-hmm. for the industry. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty wild. It's changing. Things are changing. Yeah. yeah for yeah. the better. Yeah. Because it's not that women are taking all the jobs. It's just, they're finally getting an, equal, There's an equalization. They're, they're finally happening, getting yeah. a seat at the table. I yeah. think ultimately it's not just a man's world anymore. Yeah. Voiceover is so interesting to me because it's such a small tight knit community. Yeah. And I'm surrounded by a lot of voiceover people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always hearing people ask, how do I get in? How did you get in? What do I do? Right. I feel like I can do accents. I feel like I can do all this stuff. You have such an intimate connection to it because of being an indoor kid. And those were sort of your adventures. And those mm-hmm. were sort of your, in some ways, view into the outside world, mm-hmm. um, being a little bit sheltered. And why specifically voiceover for you? I loved and continue to love animation and video games. Mm-hmm. To consume them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I feel like an adult child in a lot of ways because, like, the films that I make sure that I see are, like, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and the Lego movie, which Uh are excellent films, right? they are, yeah. I love complex emotional stories told in mediums that are accessible to many, many people. Wow. Um, Yeah. Which something like Into the Spider-Verse does really beautifully, you know? Completely. When something has a breadth of audience where, like, adults are getting dragged to see it because kids are also kids want to see it or mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be, that you have such an opportunity to reach so many people. And the power of that, especially with so much, it's so much is being made now. Yes. Where you're like, yeah. what fucking, the thing that I want to make 
you know, why does it matter? Why should it exist? Or how is it? How is it going to cut through the noise? Yeah. I think about that all the time. How is it helping people? Is yeah. it helping people? Yeah. It, there's too much stuff. But you yeah. also talk about how video games helped with your anxiety. Yeah. And so there's a there's an intimate connection there yeah. to that thing of going like, this type of art helped me figure out myself. Mm -hmm. I want to make art that helps other people figure out themselves. Yeah. And I feel like the stuff that I like and the stuff that I gravitate toward has a broader audience. But yeah, I do feel like there's a responsibility maybe of trying to say something, try to showcase something, try to... I think there is. There's, you know, the reason we tell stories are to, you know, there's cautionary tales, there's tragedies, right. there's all these different types, and you want to cover the scope of the human experience. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to me of that same thing of I get changed by stuff that I read and yeah. stuff that I watch and stuff that I... It starts the conversation, like we were saying, it starts me down a path of changing my mind about things, opening my worldview up, maybe learning something about people that I didn't know before or a group right. of people. I watch a lot of documentaries for that reason. Right. And we just want to, we're attracted to stories that yeah. hit us hard. Yeah. You know, when I walk out of a theater and I'm like, oh, man, that got me. Yeah. It changes you. Yeah. And you want to you want to replicate that. Yeah. And do that for other people. Yeah. Yeah. When you're sitting down to write, mm -hmm. whether it's, something that you're you've come up with whether it's something that somebody's asked you to write your you know obviously your imdb is a beautiful collage of, <laughs> it's just fun you look at it you go every one of these is a super fun gig <laughs> like you've Thanks. you've you've really you've done well in that way that you've been able to just kind of slide into some awesome gigs and I work hard lucky, and yeah. yeah like when you're sitting down to write what's your biggest challenge is it distractions? Is it getting out of your own head? Is it, you know, what is it for it's, you? It's definitely getting out of my own head. It's definitely like, because I have that internal voice that's like, why you? Why your voice? Why mm -hmm. is it important? Why, you know, like, and I think a certain amount of that is okay, is helpful, is good to think about, and then too much of it, which I can have sometimes, is debilitating, mm. where you can talk yourself out of writing anything, you know? <laughs> you can, I've done it. I, you know what I yeah. mean? Uh, whether you're like, oh, it's derivative or whatever, or it's not saying anything, you know, it's because there is a perfectionist tendency. I think that often is coupled a lot with people that have anxiety, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think, yeah, getting out of my own way and having a sort of trust of trust of the process, because mm -hmm. it's not like the first time you shit something out. It's not you. Ne there's never a first draft that you stick with. No. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, you should rework something and be willing to rework something. Mo until moments before it's being filmed or mm -hmm. recorded or whatever. You know what I mean? You should be, you should have that not to an insane degree so that it's like you're waiting, you know, that your cast is waiting for, <laughs> <There's never laughs> for scrape, you know yeah. what I mean? There's, Procrastination you know. and letting your heart be open to the possibilities right. of the day, yeah. So that's the thing that I really need to keep working on is trusting the process and, and trusting enough in my ability, even if I don't have that intrinsic trust, to trust from the external evidence mm -hmm of I've gotten hired X amount of times. I've gotten rehired X amount of times. I've, you know, whatever. I've sent these things to people that I trust and I've gotten good feedback and I know that they would tell me if it was shit and blah, blah, blah. Right. So that's, I think that's the main thing. And I think part of that is like experience, dealing with that partially is experience and also using tools, which is why like all of the story structure things, there's no one set thing that anyone should do, I don't mm -hmm, think. But mm -hmm. I think the benefit of it is it makes, it gives you enough of a formula so that you can hopefully 
take that, take your brain out of it, take your anxiety out of it enough that you can like map something. So yes. it feels a little bit more con concrete that you mm -hmm. have like, whether it's, you know, three X structure, six X structure, story circle, whatever it happens to be that you can be like, okay, maybe if I just map these points, mm -hmm. you know, if I just start maybe there, maybe something will yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. And then also... I think the idea of writing as a solitary thing doesn't make any sense to me. Not even just like you could write something, your name is the only thing on it. Mm -hmm. But at some point, at least for me, I have to, it has to be shown. And I'd have to have people read it and experience it and tell me what's wrong with it. I'm the same way. You know, I just don't think you can. I mean, I'm sure people can, but I just. I don't think it's as healthy. I don't think it's healthy. Because then you're, it's just your perspective. Yeah. And it's your, it's just you. Yeah. And. If you're humble enough to, you know, reach out for that help, yeah, um, it, it takes a certain level of ego out of it because you go, no, I did this on my own. Nobody touched yeah. this and it's gold. And, you know, I, I I value the opinion of others too much. You know, I, yeah. I send things to people that I really trust and I know they're going to tell me if it sucks yeah. or if it's not fleshed out or if this character arc is right. flimsy and falls apart. I need that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually also part of the reason that I... I love writers' rooms too, is because you get that feedback in real time, and there also I think the emotionality gets taken out of it in a way when mm -hmm. you're in a writers' room. Because for me, when I get into a writers' room, it sort of feels like you're solving a puzzle. Mm -hmm. If there's a bit of like, it feels like there's a bit of detective work. You know what I mean? It's all laid on the table. Yeah, everybody's, you're like, mm, yeah. yeah, you're like using the red, yeah, 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 you know, whatever yarn or whatever. And there's like a fun in that where you can, if you can remove yourself egoically from the process that it does feel like you're solving a put like you're solving a mystery mm -hmm. or di dispassionately throwing things away when I'm writing is one of my favorite feelings because you're like to be able to go like oh yeah that doesn't work and then just throw it and it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how long you spent on it yeah and if it, it was maybe your favorite thing in the script to have the perspective and the lack of preciousness to be able to go like oh no and just, <laughs> just throwing it out yeah feels great. For me, it's like, oh, good. I don't have to realize, I don't have to figure out how to rework this thing to make it make sense. Right, it's right, It's just right. gone. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. just gone. Get rid of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Collaboration is so important in this business. I'm thinking about animation, video games, film, TV, um, all things that you've been a part of. There's no part of that that's done alone. Right. Outside of sometimes the writing. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a team of people to right. make that thing happen. Animation right. is so complicated. It's so expensive. Uh -huh. It changes by the second. You think it's a drawing. I can have all the explosions or like right. all the things I want, but like it's not always the case. It's a, right. it's a, and you have to collaborate all the way down the supply chain. Yeah. It's important. And yeah. it's important to our creative process to be open to that collaboration. I too love being in a writer's room and going, oh God, thank God they said that's a way yeah. better idea than yeah. I had. Yeah, absolutely. Now my idea would have been really shitty if I had brought it up. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Or when someone takes something and they go, oh, like the moments where you're like, and then this, and then this, mm -hmm. and you feel that mm -hmm. like all of these disparate elements come together. Someone just found the one connecting factor and then, and then it's a thing. It's the great, it's like the greatest high. It's like, like a, it's like everyone scoring a touchdown at the same time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's so great. Yeah. I played a video game uh -huh. a little while ago called Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, did you? I was so overwhelmed with joy to know <laughs> that my, my old pal Ashley Birch was. Uh, that game, the scope of that game was so massive. Mm -hmm. The production on that, the amount of time it must have taken, right. it's so 
gorgeous and it's so beautiful, isn't it? Detailed, yeah. gorgeous. I spend too much time just looking at plants Absolutely. and just walking you around can. and going like, "What? What, what you is just this?" Just go on top of a mountain and just like and just look, look at around. The it's crazy. What was that process like for you? Because was that your first time doing motion capture for a game? Have you had you done it before for anything? Uh like uh, like the smallest amount. Like I done I done motion capture strangely for an indie game. Oh wow. Um, yeah. And then I done a very, very, very small amount of motion capture for uh, Borderlands Two. Yes, like Tina. very small, and then also a little bit for Maya, like a little bit. Yeah. I literally like walked into a room and put my hand on my hip and did like. <laughs> that was basically it. But um. And my day rate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do I still get lunch if this is all I did? Do I still get to eat lunch with everybody? <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, yeah. So so doing, I think doing motion capture on the. Frozen Wilds, by that point, had been maybe my first gig mm-hmm. doing motion capture. It feels wrong that I'm saying this. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but it it's what I, I might be. But um, yeah, so that was, it was great. It's an interesting process, right? Amazing, because you yeah. have no costume to no sort costume. of help you get into the character. People, people you have an anti-costume. You have an anti Yeah, you, <laughs> you ultimately do. Yeah. yeah, it'd be easier just your normal clothes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people I talk to that end up doing it mm-hmm. tell me that that's one of the that and the fact that there's really no set. Yeah. You're in a padded warehouse with right. thousands of cameras and sensors and your props are, you know, like a toilet paper roll for a gun. And, right. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like all that yeah. weird stuff. Was it hard for you to get into the character doing that as easy? You know, it's a lot easier in just voiceover because you're in a booth. Right. You're able to do, you know, as many takes as you want. Right. Stakes are a little bit higher when you're doing mocap. Right. What right. was that process like for you? It was interesting about the first game, which I told you a little bit about mm-hmm. before we started filming. But um, so I was writing for Adventure Time at the same time that we were filming, recording uh, the first game. So they originally wanted me to come out to London and do all the motion capture for like several months, basically. Yeah. And I couldn't because I was writing for Adventure Time. So we, they had a basically a stunt woman doing motion capture for Aloy. Mm-hmm. So going into doing Frozen Wilds was a bit intimidating. Because I'm the least threatening small baby child of a person. And if you see the way that uh, that Aloy moves in the first game, there's so much physical presence and, you know, confidence and assuredness in the way that she moves. And so it was interesting because Aloy feels so much like my character. Mm-hmm. But then it was a strange thing of, like, I had to sort of practice how to move like her. Yeah. Which was sort of an odd thing. Yeah. I remember I was on a camping trip with friends and I was doing like a weird model showcase where I was like trying to walk like Aloy and they were like uh, heavier in your feet. Like they were giving me like <laughs> notes as I was like walking. Because they had played it? Yeah. I, yeah. Showed, I was like, well, I was showing certain people that hadn't played it. Like here's yeah. some, like here's some of the cutscenes, and they were like looking and going like, okay, that's pretty good. Okay. But you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that's tough. Sort of a funny thing. But the, the glorious part of motion capture is that you are working with other actors. Mm. So, What's beautiful about that is that you can totally, you can put yourself a bit on the back burner and just be like, just focus on what your scene partner is doing mm. and make it about that interaction. And then that sort of self-consciousness goes away because it's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. And I actually don't find, you know, the camera here and the dots and the, that actually doesn't bother me mm. very much. It's easy to sort of, when you're in it and you're like looking in someone's eyes, it's easy for that stuff to kind of just Fade fall away. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was worried about, like, I wanted her to feel physically present in the same way. Um, so that was my main concern. But then going into uh, the actual shooting, the DLC was so well cast. 
uh, Nikar Zadigan, do you know her? Mm -hmm, Have, mm -hmm. She played Araya. Mm -hmm. Nikar is like one of the most fucking delightful people on the planet. Really? She's yeah. She's amazing. I've heard. She's so great. Yeah. And, oh my God, I'm forgetting Richard's last name. Richard Neal, I think. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Played Aratak, also an insanely delightful human. The entire cast, I spent the most time with them. But, yeah. Um, but such giving, lovely people and working with them was just amazing. And I, I love seeing cutscenes from the DLC because I can just pinpoint moments where if I had not worked with them in person, like small nuance, but that would not be there. And that would not be, you can mm. see like, I, that came out of me developing a relationship with Nakar and understanding Araya through mm. her performance, gave that nuance to that moment. Yeah. And so a talented actor can do either and, and can craft an amazing performance with just voice. Mm -hmm. But there is something so wonderful about getting to act with other people. Yeah. For that reason, because you get all these moments. And you get to use your body. And you get to use your body. Yeah. Yeah. You're not Absolutely. limited to just a booth where you're talking. Right. Basically. Mm -hmm. You have to put everything into your voice. Right. Yeah. Let's see. Let's go back to Life is Strange. Okay. Great game. Great game. Nominated for a BAFTA. Yeah. You were? You were I'm also nominated for Horizon, right? Yes. Ooh, two BAFTA nominations. Two BAFTA nominations. That's pretty cool. Thank you. You'll get there someday. <laughs> after this, after this, you'll be on the radar. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> what the character of Chloe? So there's mm -hmm. a lot. There's a lot there to unpack there's in a lot that there, game. Yeah. And I know you've talked about it before. Yeah. When you first were approached or whatever about that game, what were the internal conversations you were having about what you wanted to how you wanted that character to come across because there's mm -hmm. the writing mm -hmm. there's the design there's all that stuff but at the end of the day your voice has to make all those things come to life uh-huh we were just talking about being limited to a booth versus right. like on camera or whatever else what were those what were those tenets of that character for you that you really wanted to make sure came across in your performance so when i got the audition for chloe the description, her like her, you know, her description, her character description, and then some concept art of her was available. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, there's an easy way to read this, which is sort of like angsty teen. Mm. And I really didn't want to do that. I really wanted to find an angle that had that as a color, but that she wasn't just petulant and she wasn't just angry. So my sort of sensibility going into performing Chloe was that obviously she is angry and there is a certain amount of petulance, mm -hmm. but that you can also feel that there is a weariness and, and sort of the weight of having too much trauma happen to her at too young an age, mm. you know, and that it manifests as rebellion and anger, but that behind that is insecurity, lack mm. of safety, and and a sort of sense that like a world that once seemed safe is safe is no longer safe. Wow, yeah. So because it's you know that was what was that's what they wrote as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, her father who dies mm -hmm. was her best friend basically. So you go from having a very stable life with you know supportive parents and pillars. pillars. One of those pillars gets knocked out. That's bad enough. And now there's like this new aggressive toxic person taking the place of mm -hmm. this pillar. It's a lot. Yeah. And to be that young, you know. Yeah. That was my goal. Um, 
was to try, and I, and I hope I achieve this, to try to give greater shade to that experience than just, like, angry teen, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because that's what the script demanded. And also, you know, like, but I think, you know, I do remember seeing the sides and being like, there's an ang- there's an easy way to do this. And I want to try to find a shade, a shade past that. I think your writing helped with that. Do you think your writing helps mm-hmm. you dig deeper into characters? Because when you write, you have to flesh out all that stuff. Yeah. And I also think it helps me. I think it can sometimes get me in trouble. But I I, I try to, I try to, I, I can't not think of the entire narrative. Mm. You know, so even though I really should only be focused on Aloy or Claire or whatever, I can't help but think of how does what's happening here impact the larger narrative? How is it going to service this moment that you need later? It makes me think, feel like I am a broader custodian than just of this person. It's like this person is part is a is a cog in a machine that is meant to convey certain things. Think about the story overall. Yeah. And the so experience. I, yeah, exactly. So I I am aware of that because hmm. sometimes I'll speak up and 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 I did this a lot with Aloy, um, of moments that I felt like needed more of an emotional tinge than others or, or whatever it happened to be, and I feel like that is more prominent in my head because. I'm thinking of the narrative arc mm-hmm. and where we're headed mm-hmm. and what is needed to make this moment hit. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, that definitely, writing has definitely influenced that, like yeah. kind of wider view, broader view. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like people are open to, you know, when I when I write something, I want people to right. want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I, want, I want people to go, yeah, but I also want them to, Find the blind sides in it, mm-hmm. the blind sides, and show me what that is, so I can. Right, because I'm like, oh wait, I didn't. You're right. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you present that to people in whatever medium it is, they're excited and they're right. like, oh shit, I'm glad you brought this to the table. Yeah. Sometimes there's friction there. What's your experience been? Both. Some people are really open to it, and some people are pretty specific. Yeah. Um, like Aaron Sorkin, famously, you you're not allowed to change right. his dialogue when you perform it. Right, right, right. That is, it can be challenging for me sometimes when the specificity is like, because I have noticed as I've grown as an actor that even just adding a couple of words at the beginning of a line to get you into it or whatever mm. can just completely change the performance. Even just like adding like an uh sometimes or like okay or just anything that gets you the that helps you get into the attitude of what the line is can make it feel way more naturalistic when people are that specific about like don't even add those i do feel like sometimes they're shortchanging performance mm. or can be but i also respect that like some people are are very specific and they're very meticulous and they slaved over that particular you know line sequence of words yeah, you know yeah, what i mean yeah, yeah. And I, I could also see there being like, this is a bit presumptuous. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, spent yeah. hours on this. Uh, you're you're come seeing in it for the first me. time and you're going to tell me how to fucking say it? I spent four months doing this. Season. Yeah, what right. Yeah. So I get both ways. But I do think it needs to be a balance. Because if you're hiring someone to perform this character, then you need to have some level of respect of what they're bringing. And that they had enough of an understanding of what you're trying to do that you, that you cast them. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah. So I think it's a give and take. But I do, you know, when people are like, could you stay scripted? I'm like, got it, boss. <laughs> no problem. No problem. No problem. <laughs> yeah, you kind of learn to know when there's that yeah. room or not. Yeah. 
Man, I it must be the maybe the first couple of video games you worked on. It must have been such a cool feeling to think back about that kid with anxiety playing video games, playing Metal Gear, and going, "I'm I'm doing this now." It's rare that you. It's rare, yeah. rare that you have those experiences as a kid and you have these dreams and then you go like, oh, one day I may, you know, be a part of this world. And then yeah. there you are on a mocap stage making a huge video game and going like, oh, my God, I kind I, of I yeah. got there. Was there that feeling for you? I have to say it took a while. Yeah. Because I think. Why? Because of the anxiety, I think. So much of, which is actually something that I think. I don't think I've ever really talked about before. And I'm actually kind of glad that I'm getting the opportunity to do it now because I think. I think, I mean, it's sort of a rare, I don't know why, I know why I wouldn't talk about it a lot because there is sort of circumstantial, but it's mm. like, I think a lot of people when they start to do their dream job are surprised to find that there are a lot of difficulties with getting your dream job. Yes. And then there's also can be like a shame or a guilt associated, which is, this is my dream job. Why does it feel this way? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in therapy now for like, what year is it? 2019. So six years. Mm. And um, in that process, I've grown and healed so much. And when I first started, I was, I can't believe how much anxiety I worked through Mm. just being in therapy for that long. Yeah. Because I look back on my earlier gigs and I was just so terrified of fucking it up that 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 was all I would focus on. Mm -hmm. If I had a gig, I was terrified of fucking it up. So I just had to get through the gig. And then once I got through the gig, I was like, I have to get another gig. Mm-hmm. And if I don't get another gig, and then when I got that gig, I can't fuck up this gig. Yeah. And then it was just that cycle. Yeah. For so long. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. Pretty un- typical in this town, too, of, of right. the way that the business side of things works right. and creates even more of that anxiety. Absolutely. Yeah. So it isn't until fairly recently that I've been able to look back. And look forward, and, and, and currently, like the show that I just wrapped, I yeah. I loved. There was still anxiety, but I was able to settle in, you know, both on the writing side and then in the acting side, and be like, God, what a fucking unbelievable opportunity. Mm. What wonderful people I'm surrounded by. Like, mm. to have gratitude. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people talk about this kind of subject, and I, I've learned that it is a it is a practice that you have to actively, you have to practice gratitude. It's mm-hmm. not something that just comes. Yeah. So for the beginning of my career, it was very much just like, what if I fuck it up? What mm-hmm. if I fuck it up? What if I fuck it up? Where do you think that comes from? Cool, I got theories. I, I mean, mean, I'm sure uh, you've, you've unpacked it, but yeah. I feel like you have a sheltered sort of childhood where right. you were indoors. You found right. the outside world through mediums, you know. Right. I was about to say not to put my parents on blast, but it's their fault. Uh, but I mean, it, <laughs> I'm half fucking around. I mean, it's like yeah. my, you know, it's one of those things where I think most parents try their best. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, you fuck your kids up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, Completely. You, there's no way to avoid it. My parents have said that to me. Right. Yeah, they have said that to me. It's like yeah. you were our third kid and we still just made so many mistakes. And yeah. It's like you, when you get older, you go, I understand. It's fine. Yeah. But you have to deal with that stuff. Absolutely. Sometimes. And also, I mean, this is wild, but like there is research being done now that you can literally genetically inherit inherit trauma. Mm-hmm. And my mom had a fucking crazy childhood. Really? Nuts. Yeah. She grew up in Thailand. Poor. Like. Yeah. So just start to imagine shit. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. No joke, yeah. No joke. So who knows how much of that's in there. Mm-hmm. My dad's a whole story we won't get into. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some amount of inheriting. And then when you have people that have, in, that have experienced that much trauma, then like how, you know, how does parenting happen? And the difficulties that come with trying to be a parent when you have that much trauma. Yeah. And then you create little humans. How do you deal with it? 
character. What's the truth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's a huge part of it. And yeah. that's something that is getting de-stigmatized. Yeah. Um, what's the truth you tell yourself in those moments to remind you that you're going to be okay? I mean, and to be totally honest, there are moments where I can't talk myself down from the ledge. And it's just time. You like, just have to have time you just, to like... Yeah, like yeah. there's just certain... There are certain days where it's like... No matter fucking what I do or what happens, it's all falling apart. No mm. one can talk me out mm -hmm. of that. And no one can talk you out of anything anyway. But, like, I go to therapy once a week. And I uh, I just recently started doing TM. Yeah. Understandably, I think there's a lot of, like, you know, because. Skepticism. Yeah, there's skepticism because it costs money. Mm -hmm. Which I get because there's lots of meditation that doesn't. Yeah. But it is wild. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a wild physical experience, which I've never had with meditation before. Mm. But even if, and the kind of cool, you get a pamphlet where they're like, I don't, <laughs> one of the questions, one of the, you know, there's like, there's like a Q&A in the pamphlet. And one of them was like, I don't, I think this is bullshit, basically. Yeah. And they're like, that's fine. You don't have to believe in it for it to work. And I think it's pretty true because there's just a strange mm. thing where like the first TM session, I, I was pretty skeptical going in and I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And then he gave me my mantra or whatever. And it was just like worked immediately. Yeah. It was really wild. Wow. Mm. But even if you're like, I don't know about this, at minimum, you are two times a day sitting down and you're breathing. Mm -hmm. Just breathing. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's not even like the TM is different from other meditations in which you don't even focus on your breath. Mm -hmm. you, you do nothing. They basically say like, it's about doing nothing, mm -hmm. which is also sort of interesting mm -hmm. to just have like the pressure of needing to be or do or do anything is like antithetical to the point. Yeah. And I have found before that I was doing a lot of mindfulness meditation which is more difficult because it is about returning to your breath consistently. Mm -hmm. I was doing that for several years, and I would notice the days that I didn't meditate that I was much more— Things were off. Things were off. Yeah. I was much more susceptible and much more of a raw nerve, and my anxiety was much more heightened. So I go to therapy, and I, and I do meditation now, twice yeah. a day. Yeah. And it's helped so much. And I think the, the hard thing with therapy, A, for a lot of people, is the cost. Mm -hmm. B, there are shitty therapists out there. Tons. Tons. Yeah, I've burned through all of them. Oh, my God. They're all out of practice now. <laughs> They've all surrendered their, they're like, that's it. I don't ever want to talk to someone like that again. <laughs> you did a service. You did a public service. I did. I got them. At, they all work at, you know, Ralph's somewhere now. I got them, yeah. But it is hard. I mean, I'm not going to, like, sit here and be like, just go to therapy. It's a, t it's a difficult, getting to the place where, like, like, I had a crazy thing happen to me that it was like, I literally was like, I have no choice. I must go to I therapy. I must go. I was talking um, to a friend of mine about that the other day because he's going through some stuff and he lacks the tools to be able to get out of it himself. Mm -hmm. That isn't weakness. No. That's not weakness. I think strength is being able to say, Yes. I can't. I lack the tools to be yes. able to get out of this myself. If it was weak, everyone would be doing it. If it was mm -hmm. the easy way out, everyone if it was the it. path of least resistance, everyone would be doing it. It should be an indicator that the fact that it's very hard for people to go to therapy, it's very hard for people to express their feelings, it's very hard for people to reach out for help, that it takes a tremendous amount of strength to do those things. Yeah. When someone reaches out for help or for advice, my initial thought isn't to say, mm, you couldn't handle this on your own. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like right. if you got to push your car, you're going to ask someone to, to help, help you your, yeah, because exactly. like you need help getting that car from point A to point B. Right. Our our experience is the same way. We need we need help getting through yeah. life. It is full of ups and downs and unpredictabilities Absolutely. and tragedies and triumphs and being able to figure out a way to navigate that with each other. Mm -hmm. 
that's why we're here. Absolutely. We need people. Yeah. And we need that connection. Yeah. And the nice thing about therapy, especially if you have a good therapist, at least with with my experience with therapy, it is an opportunity to build trust with someone in a a setting where you basically call the shots. So mm. like, I remember the first time that my therapist was like, he kind of had it, he, cause he's very intuitive. He asked me a question. I sort of faltered and he was sort of, he just sort of intuited that I didn't trust him. Mm. And he was like, you don't have to trust me. I have to earn your trust. And that to me, big. was big because yeah. I had, because there's, especially I think, you know, it, it's not gender specific, but I think also there is a thing with, with women, especially that like, when you're sort of crafted to be people pleasing, that even if there's not trust, or even if they're like, like I'll, I will, I will fuck with my own sense of boundary so that you feel okay. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I really, I relate to this, and I know a lot of people are going to also. The other thing that's interesting is you study your own behavior mm-hmm. throughout your life. Mm-hmm. You understand what you're prone to do, mm-hmm. but you don't always understand why you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most important parts about self-reflection. Mm-hmm. The why is, was very important to me too. Yeah. Um, and, and therapy helped me with a lot with that. You don't have to dwell on it. You no. don't have to go. But it lets you off the hook a bit, right? But it it like, does let yeah. you off the hook. You're not, you're not, you're not 100% responsible for your own flaws. Right. Cause I feel like there's a lot, a lot of uh, part and parcel with a lot of anxiety is, it, it is a sort of like, I don't know, there's a shame or like mm-hmm. a, there can be self-hatred and there's a sort of element of like, when you start to realize where these things come from, it eases that, I think. Because yeah. you're like, oh, it's not just because I'm a, I'm a trash fire. Mm-hmm. It's because this aspect of my childhood and this thing from my mom and this thing from my dad and this thing from my environment and all of these things put together created this person that a I am. A complicated person. A complicated person. Well, we, the, which we all are. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the thing that is interesting and the more that I've sort of realized going through this process is that the anxious part of me is a three-year-old that still needs shit mm. and is still like, I still need this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like didn't get it when, didn't get certain things when she was that age. So she just stayed mm. and she's still waiting, mm. you know, yeah, for yeah. me to get the things that will make her feel okay. Mm. And so that has helped me so much because again, you can beat yourself up for like, just fucking get over it or why are you having these thoughts or whatever. When, when I imagine it as a three-year-old, yeah, you wouldn't behave that no, way as a three-year-old. Think, no. You'd be like, oh my God, what's mm-hmm. going on, babe? Like, mm-hmm. let's talk, you know, yeah. like, you know, the more that I interact with people, the more that I learn about myself. I think everyone has that and everyone needs parenting still, mm-hmm. but we can't have it because there's, there's a certain length of time yeah. <laughs> and there are certain people that you get and they do their best. And inevitably, they're going to fuck up. Yeah. And so you're left with this sort of like, you know, you have this this leftover mm-hmm. that then you have to be your own parent for. Right. And I do feel that that's where so much pain and and also shitty things that people do come from is these un, are these unmet needs. Yeah. And the way that these unmet needs manifest as anxiety, depression, anger, whatever, and mm-hmm. then how those sort of you know metastasize into shitty behavior. My big thing is like, why can't I snap out of this? That's how I beat myself up. Yeah. Because I'll get into a cycle and I'm like, why can't I snap out of this? And then I end up just staying in it because I can't find mm-hmm. the way out. It's like a carousel that's moving so fast. Yeah. And you're like, I have to jump off. Realistically, this thing's <laughs> going like what? Seven miles an hour? 
if I was in a car going, so like, but there's yeah, something right. scary about it because everything's spinning, and that's sort yeah. of the way those cycles sometimes feel. You need somebody outside yourself to come in yes. and go, it's cool. Yes. You don't have to snap out of it. Yes. You just make your way through it, and here's Absolutely. the tools to sort of do that. Yeah. And then when you get that, it's freeing. And I think part of the thing, the, the idea, this idea of like it's weakness is sort of a is sort of a lie to keep you in it because I think the sort of perverse weird thing about it is that it feels safer because mm-hmm. you don't know anything outside of it. Mm-hmm. Like when I started sort of healing my anxiety more and more, I got afraid of it going away because, because I was it's a like comfort blanket. It's yes, been there for so long. It's a toxic, stinking, dirty comfort blanket. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just the language I just used to describe it was mean. You exactly. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I just caught myself. I was like, that's so rude. That's my that's my baby girl's baby blankie. I know, I you know, know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is there's a safety in it. There's mm-hmm. like I don't know what life is like outside of this. What if what if when I let go of this, it all falls apart? This is the thing that's keeping it all together. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is that sort of linkage that happens. You, I, I know people that will hold on to those things and 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 almost as if they would feel naked without it. Absolutely. I would rather live with the torment of this thing than find out what happens when it's gone. When it's gone. Because I'm afraid of opening that door. And when it's gone, and it's not 100% gone for me, this is the one thing, I feel like I'm talking so much about things that my therapist has told me. But he's a great therapist. This is great. I want everyone to know what he has to say. Uh, Yeah, we'll flash his business card. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very long uh, Mm -hmm. commercial for my therapist. Mm -hmm. But, um... I remember him once saying, like, you get to keep all the good things. Yes. And then, but then this this deep lack of ease gets lifted, but you get to keep all the good things. Mm-hmm. I had a mentor once describe it to me like you're like a you're an X-Men. You're like it's a mute like a mutant oh, wow. power. Yeah. Because when you have this level of intense, you know, whatever, because you're so hypervigilant and you're way too aware of what other people think, or you're way too aware of your environment or whatever, you can become very good with people. Mm. Um, like I when I first started pe- telling people that I had anxiety, I-, I got a lot of surprise because I am generally, I think, pretty affable. Yeah, big um, time. And so I think people found it surprising that I had anxiety because I seemed socially, you know, relatively well-equipped. And so, but I think it's because of my anxiety mm. that because I can feel like, oh, you had a slight switch in your posture, your your vibe, your energy, or whatever you want to call it. Um, something I said s- Triggered something in yeah, you, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm going to pivot and mm-hmm. make what's something more comfortable. Let's find something more comfortable. Like, like you said, you're more worried about making someone else comfortable than you are your own absolutely. like healing and your own process and stuff. So then yeah. I become good at being with people, good at giving advice, good at making space. And those are all things I really like about myself. Yeah. And the shadow side of it is all the anxiety that comes with it. But then as you start to lift the anxiety, you just get the nice stuff. Mm-hmm. You just get the, oh, I know how to make space with someone without absorbing it. Without, yeah, you're you know not, what I mean? Yeah, like, you're also not projecting onto them how right, they are reacting right, to you. Right. <laughs> yeah, which I do all the time. Absolutely. I'll see someone here and say something, and then I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> right. Their face. I have to spend the next two hours apologizing and fixing this and making them feel better and buy them lunch. Yeah, and like, absolutely. Right. Give them a vacation, whatever right. it is. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you need money? Do you need money? What do you yeah, need? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Let me cut the check. Let me cut the check to make up whatever is going to get that look off your face right now (laughs) after what I just said. You and I have a very interesting connection Mm -hmm. in in a weird way because I, number one, spent several years of my 20s as an opiate addict. Mm -hmm. And I, a few years ago, met... um, the wonderful Patrick Fugit, who's mm-hmm. now one of my closest friends. 
and he brought you up one time mm -hmm. and I said, you know, Ashley Birch, that's crazy. Cause, uh, I said, I, I, I don't know her, but I know that she's around. I obviously knew who you were. And then when you and I finally met, I, I sort of came to better understand that, uh, small world connection, mm -hmm. which was your ex-boyfriend, David, who mm -hmm. passed away a few years ago from a opiate overdose, accidental mm -hmm. opiate mm -hmm. overdose. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm getting kind of emotional because I've lost, yeah. I've lost several friends that way. I, yeah. I had a lot of close calls. My, my yeah. journey out of that was due to a extremely close call. Really? Yeah. I had several of them because you, you end up in a place where you can't trust your own mind or your own body. Right. And you go, I know I, I handled this much last time. Right. I can probably just bump that up again. Right. I can probably, but your body changes and it, it, it reacts in different ways and different yeah. days and how much you ate and how much you've slept and what else is going on in your body and what you've mixed it with and all these other things. Right. And I came close several times and it scared me. It, it scared me. And I, when my friends started to go, when, when three, four, five stints in rehab for some of my friends was not working, yeah. I was getting really scared. When did um, you start? Can I ask how old were you when you started using? Early 20s. That's right. Okay. Up yeah. until uh -huh. almost my late 20s. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. When I moved to LA um, about 10 years ago was, was, was when I, I stopped. Uh -huh. I, I, I took this as a trip to reset. Uh-huh. This is an epidemic across the country right now. Yeah. There are I'm angry. I'm I'm angry yeah. about it. I've yeah. written about it. I'm angry. I'm angry at how accessible it was for me to get. I'm yeah. angry about how accessible oxy and opiates in general are for young people. Yeah, it couldn't have hit closer to home for you than it did with David. Yeah. Um. To whatever extent you're 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 comfortable, talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, uh, his name uh, was David Fetzer. And he and I met on uh, the set of uh, an indie movie made by our uh, – oh, you've met Kenny, right? I know Kenny. Beautiful Kenny yep. Riches. Mm -hmm. um, great filmmaker. Great filmmaker and a, a dear friend of Patrick's. And, mm -hmm. and David and Patrick were uh, like childhood best friends. Yes. So David and I played the male-female lead. Mm -hmm. um, and – you know, I think it's changing, but the other difficult thing about addiction is that people have a very specific picture of what it looks like, mm. and it's not favorable. You know, it's like a homeless person talking to themselves mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And David was this gregarious, sweet, funny, goofy, gentle dear person. Mm. So David and I started dating. Um, and I remember dating him being like the first time that I ever felt what safe feels like. Wow. Wow. He was just, and he was like, <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but one of, one of our mutual friends pointed it out to me. So they, you know, they, they were born and raised in, um, in Utah. Mm -hmm. And Dave and I were uh, long distance for um, a portion of our time together. And I remember visiting him once in Utah and we went to a coffee shop and uh, I like, I must have kissed him on the cheek or, or something. It was clear that we were together. Yeah. And one of our mutual friends was like, because <laughs> he was 
he was like the guy everyone in Utah wanted to date. Uh, so I was told. Yeah. yeah, yeah so I I, there was just a sea of female mm-hmm. eyes that came with such vitriol looking at me. Who is this foreign woman <laughs> coming in here and kissing our town? This young Mexican <laughs> <Yeah>. boy dating. <laughs> dating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he was really, you know, everyone in, everyone in Salt Lake knew him and, and adored him. Mm. And um, he, he was a musician. He was a musician. He was an actor. Mm-hmm. He and Patrick had a band together named Mushman. Yep. Um, he was just such a, I mean, everyone says this about people that die, right? But he was like such a singular human being. Mm. He was so universally beloved. And um, and we, I discovered, I guess, like maybe a year and change into us dating. Because I had never, it's funny because my dad is, um, my uh, dad was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Is an alcoholic, but he stopped drinking before I was born. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So I remember being talked a lot about, like he would he would talk about it a lot mm. in terms of like you have my blood in you, so when you start drinking, just be careful, mm. monitor thing. Like that kind of mm. conversation came up a lot. Yes. So I knew about it in as much as as that, yeah. you know. But like he wasn't actively drinking mm-hmm. ever in my life, so I I had never seen what an active addict looks like. So in retrospect, there's all the, you know, whatever. There's all this, like, guilt and shame about, like, it was so obvious. Well, mm-hmm. you know, but. You're going to go through that. You're going to go through yeah. that. But it wasn't until I kind of, I, like, caught him, basically, and realized, like, David has a problem. Because mm. he with was. With drinking or with other stuff? With opiates. Yeah, with opiates, yeah. Because David had. I mean, I, I, I'll never know for sure. Because some people just get addicted. Mm-hmm. And some people get addicted because of as a coping mechanism, some people get addicted because they get addicted. Like there's just so many physical, there's emotional, there's there's emotional. And I don't know what the exact cocktail of that was for David, Mm -hmm. but um, on the physical side, he had two herniated discs in his spine. So he could go to any doctor and show them an x-ray and they'd be like, Oh my God, here's, you must be in so much pain. Here's a bunch of opiates. Yeah. So he was doctor shopping. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of anger about it too, because he went to, I don't know how many fucking doctors before someone checked to see how many times he had been prescribed Percocet. See if he had another prescription. Mm-hmm. He'd gone to at least five, at least five fucking doctors before someone checked yeah. to see if he'd been prescribed before. And when that doctor finally checked, he sat him down and he was like, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Here are, and he gave him a bunch of resources, basically. Like, here's a, you know, here's a, a clinic that does, um, you know, a pain management without use of uh, addictive mm-hmm. substances. Here's this rehab. Here's, you know. And so I remember him coming home from that experience and actually having a lot of gratitude for that doctor and being like, he was really great. And he just sat me down. And he'd claimed that he had taken a different drug than he'd actually taken. Mm. Because I remember before he went to this doctor. Um, I had I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew something was wrong and I had asked him to stop taking Percocet. Mm-hmm. So he claimed that he hadn't taken it when he came back from this yeah. doctor. He claimed he'd given me, he'd given, he had been given a different drug, but he had the same symptoms. And I remember Googling his symptoms and for the drug that he claimed that, I can't even remember what it was, but for whatever drug he claimed he was taking, uh, they were severe, like ho- like you should take someone to a hospital. So I got really scared, yeah. and I actually found the number for the doctor he had just seen mm. and called and was like, you just, you know, my boyfriend David just came and saw you. He's having these really severe symptoms. I'm wondering if I should take him somewhere. 
And the doctor just kept saying, I think you and he should come in and see me. Okay. And he wouldn't, he kept saying that. He wouldn't tell me anything else. And I remember getting angry. Yeah. And I remember being like, this guy's insinuating that David's an addict. He's not an addict. Because I was also laboring under the delusion that, like, addicts are, you know, fucking, like, people in the wire. You know what I mean? Like, Yes, it's a lot more obvious. I mean, I, 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 I... I was selling cell phones at the time and I would work a full shift on Oxy and nobody had 99% of the people in my life had no idea, no idea until I quit that I was even doing it because right. you can hide certain things very well and yeah. it's it's not like being and it behooves you to, drunk. Right. It behooves you to hide it. It behooves you to hide it because yeah. then you get to keep doing it. Because then you get to keep doing it. So that was when basically David had like, he'd taken too much. He'd kind of like. I don't, I don't think he had fully passed out, but he got, like, really woozy, mm-hmm. went to sleep. I went to wake him up, and I was, like, flustered. I was, like, this fucking guy is, like, saying whatever. And his reaction was sort of, like, okay, okay, let's go. It was a reaction I was surprised by. That you had called the doctor? No, that he had oh. said, like, come, because he was, like, okay, yeah, we have to go see him. Yeah. There was, like, an, and this, this is also the confusing thing, I think, that people don't understand about addiction is that the person might say, I want to quit. I'm going to quit. And they and and a hundred percent want to and mm-hmm. believe it and believe that they can and then use the next day. Mm-hmm. And it's not like an active deception all the time. It's like David admitted to me that he had lied to me while we were getting into the car to he was like, I didn't, it wasn't this other drug, it was Percocet I lied. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment that I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. okay, you're an addict. And he didn't lie because he doesn't care about you. Right. He lied because he had to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To keep being able to use this substance that everything, I mean, his fucking body had changed to feel like it needed it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Happens a lot with long-term pain management. Absolutely. People with chronic pain and. Yeah. Yeah. They end up, it it, it becomes part of your body chemistry. Absolutely. It changes your brain. It changes your brain. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's the thing that. David told me, we went through this whole, you know, I, I got his, I talked to his family. Um, everyone was made aware. And he really, I mean, the amount of, the amount of shame I think he experienced admitting to people that he had this problem. Mm. And, uh, and I, I, I believe that he really did want to stop. He really did want to stop. And he couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Because you don't get to choose. It's by, and this is why I think 12-step programs are often, um, you know, people have a lot of hang-ups about it. But, uh, you know, I think the second step is like turn our will over to a higher higher power, power, basically. Whatever that, however that manifests itself. Yeah. But even if you're an atheist, it is, it's like, it's like the idea of like by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it's not like, it's not like you decide. You can't. You no. can't will yourself into deciding to stop. It's mm-hmm. like, I know a lot of sober people now, and and they all have completely very, very different stories. And they all have the same experiences, which is like, you know, whether they whether they believe in God or not, it's like, thank God that I was able to. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it's not sheer force of will. It's not strength of character. It's not any of that bullshit. It is, I don't know what it is. It, it, some people just hit a bottom and, and, and are able to come back up. And some people never find the bottom deep enough. And some people die. Some people just some die. Some people just die. Yeah. So it's, um, it's really hard. And, um, he didn't lose a battle. No, it's like he lost a battle 
and he died a loser. It's like when people say that he lost his battle with addiction, he lost his whatever. It's like, first of all, it's not a battle. Right. It's it's a. It is a. It's a disease. It's a disease. It's a dance. It's a. It's a. It's a reaching out. It is a. I need something else, and this is my experience. I'm not trying to project this onto David no, and his yeah. journey, but for me, it was like, I have to. I, I, I lack what I need to feel whole in this world and to move forward. This thing is not going to make me feel whole or move forward, but it's going to help me feel better until I figure that out. Yeah. <clears throat> but you never think I may not come out of this thing. Right. The clock may run out on me before I get a chance to have that happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't think, you know, pe- it, it, it's not like, it's not this like like insidious design, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think any addict is actively trying to cause anything to happen except for just for some sort of pain, whether the whether it's fucking physical, emotional, or both, to be alleviated. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's all it is, and it gets out of hand. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because my bu- my bubble is different now, mm-hmm. and I have so many people that just get what sobriety is and understand mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but it. You know, I think a lot of people still don't. And I also have a lot of difficulty talking about it because, well, one, I think people don't, which I, I can't really blame anyone for, but people don't really know how to field grief mm. because it is the ultimate <laughs> fucked up thing. It is. Yeah, Like it is to, to, to try to make space for grief, I think is a very difficult thing for people to know how to do. So I don't really, you know, blame anyone for that. But it does make it difficult to talk about because mm-hmm. the last thing you want when you're going through grief is to feel like you kind of have to babysit someone else through your experience of grief. Wow, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do, I do. Uh, I do. Which I had to – there were, uh, you know, very specific cases I remember of people uh, being angry at David. And it didn't help at all. Like, it didn't help. When like, he was still here? No, after he died. After he died. Like, I'm so mad that he did this mm. to you. Mm. I'm so mad. And it's like, he didn't, though. It's not like David was like, I'll show Ashley. You know what I mean? Like, I'll show this person yeah, I love. Yeah. Like, like, what's up? There was no, con- I don't think there was any, con- you know what I mean? Like, it's just, so people have so many thoughts and feelings about addiction and about death. And especially when those two things are intertwined, Someone having the capacity to put all that shit on the back burner and be able to make space for you. I mean, I'm, it's a lot to ask, I guess, depending on the person's experience. So, you know, there's that. And then the other thing is that while I was with him, I think there was definitely, with some people, a certain intolerance of like, well, why are you choosing to stay with this guy? Mm. Like, why would you mm. be with him? Just leave. And I think there is a certain lack of understanding also on that end of things. Because it's not like I was casually dating this guy and, you know, he was fun, but he has this thing. And even that, I'm mm-hmm. not going to fucking judge someone in that situation either. Yeah. But my circumstance with David was this is someone that I was deeply in love with and, like, I genuinely thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was I was— a long-term thing. Yeah, I was, I was young. Yeah, yeah. But even still in the relationships I've been in since, I still know that, David, that relationship was a singular experience. It Mm -hmm. wasn't just, like, a puppy love thing. Like, David was a very, very special person. Yeah. And if we had been able to figure that out, 
you know, that is the relationship that I wanted. I fully expected to just be be with him. That mm-hmm. was that was he was my person, you mm-hmm. know. So I think people not being in it, it's really hard for them to understand that component. There's a number of different factors to look at. If someone is confronted with the reality of their the seriousness of their addiction by a loved one, mm-hmm. and they openly refuse to either accept it or to do anything about it, that's an out for you. Yeah. Potentially. Right. Depending on who you are. It's not for everybody. Some right. people will go, I'm still going to stay in this because I believe this person can change and will. They're just blinded right now by this thing. Right. The other part of it is if the manifestation of that addiction creates a toxicity between you and the person that you're with or right. a parent-child relationship or brother-sister, right. whatever it is, right. that's another thing. Right. But to walk away from someone because they're addicted to something is not always the right thing to do for that person or for yourself. Mm-hmm. You, it's a case-by-case basis, and you have to look at how that thing is playing out and how willing that person is to admit it and right. to figure out how to get help. And the hardest part is admitting it. Yeah. The hardest part isn't getting the help because once it's out there. It's out there. It's out there. It's easier yeah. to get help. It's going, I have a fucking problem. Yeah. Admitting it to yourself first and then being able to take that outside. Yeah. For me, it was, I only do this once a day. Mm-hmm. I still work. Mm-hmm. I don't call in sick to work. Mm-hmm. My, 90% of my friends have no idea mm-hmm. this is happening. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. Right. I'm fine. Right. And then realizing like, I'm not fine. Right. And it is a cycle of shame. The next day waking up going, I can't do this again. Yeah. I can't do this again. If you say that to yourself up until the point where you're like, mm, it's time to take my pills. I had no herniated discs. Right. I had no chronic pain. I was not in a car accident. I had none of the things that you should be prescribed that thing for. I bought it from someone because I went, I went through a bad relationship that I didn't want to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And that period was my time of going, I'll deal with this later. I want to I want to live in this sort of carefree zone, which I thought it was. Right, right. Managing well, it isn't until it isn't, pain. right? Like, it isn't it until, isn't until it, isn't. it isn't. And that's the thing, you know, um, like I said, I have a lot of sober people in my life right, right now. And they're like, you know, the, something that I hear a lot is like, alcohol is the perfect cure for alcoholism. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that's something that's, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. this thing that like, it is... It is the thing that helps you the most until it's until it doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. and that's the thing of like, and some people are lucky, to, and some people are lucky that they get to get out of it. Yeah, and I think that's the. It's difficult for people that don't have any al- addicts in their life. It's difficult for people that do have addicts in their life. There's nothing you can do to change that situation. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the most difficult thing, and it applies outside of addiction as well. There's nothing you can do to change another person. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. And it comes from them. And and it's also, there's no perfect permutation of things. That's why people can go in and out of rehab, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it's not like one rehab visit and you're done. Right. You know? Yeah. There's no magic cure. There's no perfect permutation. It's just, you try things and you fucking hope and you pray to God if you believe in God and or, or you keep showing up to meetings if that's what you do mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? Like It's a different process for every person Yeah. because we're, how we got into it is different. And how we come out of it is different. Yeah. In the aftermath 
of his passing, did mm -hmm. you struggle? I'm asking this because I, I struggled with this with, with friends of mine in the past. Yeah. Did you, did you struggle with blaming yourself in any way? Did you struggle yes. with going, is there more I could have done? Is there more I could have said? Should I have pushed harder? Should I have tried to get more truth? Should I have talked to more doctors? Should I, I, I've been through all of that. I'm yeah. just wondering if that was your experience too. A hundred percent. I mean, uh, I, it's interesting because I think that is, so David died in, um, uh, very end of 2012. Mm. And I feel like I'm only just starting to uncover certain things about it. Mm. And I think I, I put, uh, a lot of the self-hatred stuff at the bottom of the pile because it's really hard to look at. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I feel like a fucking idiot. Like, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I would see him, you know, uh, he'd hit his head and his nose would start bleeding or, you know, he, we would be at a social gathering and you have to go in the bathroom and throw up, throw up or yeah. like just certain things that you look back and you're like, the fuck is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Like from ward one, I should have been like, there's something weird going on mm -hmm. here. And then even after we found out, I still didn't understand addiction. So the thing that we tried to focus on was like, well, if he fix his back. If we fix his back. He won't need the pills. He won't need the pills, so he'll stop using them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not true either. Right, yeah. Like, again, maybe there's a, uh, various permutations of things that came together to make him start taking these pills, and physical pain being one of them. Mm -hmm. But once you become addicted, it doesn't fucking matter if you fix the physical pain. No. Like, you have to deal with the other thing. You have to deal with the other thing, though. And there was this, you know, we were living in Seattle at the time, and he would leave. And so um, he would leave to, like, go do a show or leave to whatever, and then... I discovered after he died that whenever he left, he would use again. And that entire time, I thought that, like, because he wouldn't do it around me. Mm -hmm. um, and he would even exhibit some of the same symptoms. Like, he'd come home and, like, be laid up in bed having withdrawals. Yeah. And it was funny because it was, like, I mean, it's not funny. It's, it was weird because it was, like, my body knew. Mm. But my brain didn't. Like, Why do you think that is? Because I think my intuition is here. Basically. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, so I would and, and my brain wasn't ready to deal with the reality of the situation. So, you know, he would come back from a trip, be laid up in bed, and I would have a physical reaction of panic and and sorrow and anger and all of these things. And my brain would be like, just play video games for four hours. Right. Yeah. And yeah. To not deal with the fact that like my, my body immediately knew. Mm -hmm. The second it's, I saw him, the reaction, the physical reaction was, this is exactly what happened before. Mm. But, I, but, to, but to accept that he was using was to accept that he lied. Oh, wow, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes, Because yes. he looked, he, uh, so many yeah. times he like looked at me and was like, I'm, I can stop. I want to stop. I will stop. I'm clean. I'm yeah. clean. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so... So to allow that one thought in meant you have to allow these others. All the other ones And then in. it went, I'm going to shut them all out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because there are moments of like where, you know, non-addict David, because they are, it's like two different people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like non-addict David would be in tears and be like, I, I would never do this to you again. And I think in those moments, it wasn't a show. He believed that. He yeah. believed he would never do it again. He believed that he would never cause me that pain again. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. But these are two different people. Yeah. So to remember him in that state, so convinced he would never hurt me again, I didn't want to believe that that was a lie. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, and I didn't realize until later, I didn't understand until later, that it wasn't a lie to him in that moment. 
it became a lie later. It's not that they were going, fuck you, Ashley. Right. I'm going to go do this thing because I don't give a shit about you. Right. It's, I can't. Yeah. I can't just stop it. Right. It's not the way it works. Right. It's scientifically not the way it works. Right. It's not a betrayal to you. Right. It's not a conscious choice. It's a, I mean, it's torture. It's it's torture. You know, the thing, like, you mentioned earlier, you're, you're so angry, you know, about the accessibility David's uh, doctor, who he'd been seeing since he was a kid, so probably this person also had a complex about the idea of David being an addict, mm-hmm. potentially, if I'm being generous. Right. He was the person that he he never even spoke the word addiction. Mm. And David was taking 10 Percocets a day, which is an insane amount of an insane amount of this drug. It's it, mm-hmm. it, it's the taking one Percocet for me would probably leave me out flat. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it's so much. And I would take 25 Vicodin at a time because that's what I had to take to get high. And the doctor would tell me like that amount of acetaminophen will kill you. And I'm like, sure. But I mean, like, unless you want to give me something stronger, I'm going to take 25 of these. Right. And because people can't believe it. But if you took 25 of those right now, you'd die. But my tolerance was so high. Right. You could just take and take and take and take and take. And you have to, to get to get to that place again, place again. But it was wild to me because I, you know, like I said, after I found out that, like, David had a problem, I, I, I kind of, I was like, I can't do this on my own. So I, like, contacted his family and his friends, and he went back to Utah. He saw their family doctor, and it was like he didn't even blink at it. He he basically said— um, The doctor? The doctor. He was like, he, he said something like, the amount he's taking isn't the problem. He just needs a higher dosage. He needs a hi- so he, he takes needs- less. He needs a higher prescription, so he takes less. Right. Mm. But he didn't even float the idea of addiction. That word was not uttered at any point. The He he prescribed him the pills that killed him. Mm. This doctor did. The stronger Percocet. He gave him, because David, um, this is another thing, health insurance. But we had health insurance in Seattle because Seattle had a, um, a state-specific program mm. that David qualified for because he had a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. And was not, he couldn't get healthcare a lot yeah. of other places before the Affordable Care Act got mm-hmm. um, passed, which was unfortunately after he died. So he qualified for healthcare in Seattle because they permitted people with pre existing conditions to get healthcare. When we moved back to Los Angeles, he no longer qualified. So he mm-hmm. went to his doctor and basically said, I don't have healthcare anymore. I don't know when I'm gonna be able to get it again. I have this pain. Can you just prescribe me enough to float me for like a few months? Mm-hmm. And so this guy gave him like, Nine zero nine D pills. Wow! At once. At once. Wow. There's blame and there's not blame to be thrown around, but even if he had been like, "No, I'm David, I'm not going to give you those pills." David could have gotten them from somewhere else, probably. But like, it's the lack of conversation. The fact that of all of the doctors David saw, which was I can't imagine how many he'd mm-hmm. seen, because mm-hmm. I'm sure I saw he saw so many without me knowing. Yeah. To my knowledge, only one doctor brought up the idea of addiction. And the countless doctors he must have seen to get it's a Percocet. Problem. It's a fucking problem. And again, like I said before, there's no magic solution to addiction. But I do think awareness of, of the problem, the problem being discussed, awareness of resources, those things can give people a better chance. Health professionals paying attention. Yes. And doing their research, like you said. Yeah. Calling around and going... Does this guy have five scripts already from five different doctors? Yeah. Yeah. All those things can factor in. I I, I think I'm a, 
I guess I would call myself an agnostic. I don't mm. have a firm really yeah, belief yeah. either way. Um, but it is interesting to see how much things just don't feel like they're up to you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, You're, yeah, there is a certain amount, of, a certain amount of chaos in the in the universe that, and yeah. even internally, like I'm sure there's like a, a web of circumstances, and that's why I think like people knowing about twelve step programs, knowing about rehabs, mm-hmm. knowing about how addiction works, a doctor saying you might have a problem with addiction. Mm-hmm. Maybe none of that individually solves it, but maybe that cornucopia of things chips away at the block enough yes. that you get to a point where you hit a bottom and you all of that shit floods in and you're like, fuck, I mm-hmm. need to get help. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there, pro- there could just be a labyrinth of, of things that yeah. I that you're not aware of that suddenly click into place with the right, you know, with the right uh, impetus. impetus. Yeah. But... There's so many revelations in my own life that I feel like they just sort of happen. Mm. I didn't will them into existence. I didn't, I didn't, you know, through just sheer force of strength, convince myself of X, Y, or Z thing. It's just a process. Mm-hmm. And again, some people, they don't get the, the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is the, the greatest tragedy of it, you know? is that some people get the time and some people don't. And it's, there's no rhyme or reason to it often. You know what I mean? Like you can be the richest person in the world, all the resources at your disposal and still die. You could be the poorest person on the planet with no resources and you can make it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does not pick favorites. No. It does not pick favorites. And that clock is going to, Keep going no matter what. Yeah. That the hands on that clock are gonna keep turning. And yeah. Thank you for talking about this. I know it's yeah. a subject that we both care a lot about. I, ha- I struggled with it a lot. Because there is the stigma of like, is David just gonna be seen as an addict now? Mm. And I'm sure some people are like, oh yeah, Ashley's dead addict boyfriend. You know right. what I mean? Like yeah. that is some I've gotten <laughs> like emails of probably like 13 year olds don't know what the fuck they're saying, saying crazy shit about David, yeah. not knowing what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I remember talking, David ha- has a number of really close friends that uh, live in Michigan. And I was talking to one of them on the phone and they, I remember uh, his nickname shiny. And I remember talking to shiny and he was like, and I, I had done a podcast where I had talked about like, yes. I'd gone through everything mm-hmm. and I'd actually gotten some anger from loved ones of David for the the amount that I had shared for sharing so much. Yeah. And I get that. And I had s- such a struggle with it. Cause I, I, at the time I was like, I was worried if I was like, should I talk about this going into it? And then I thought, well, I'm afraid David would be ashamed if he was still alive. Mm. And then again, this like voice came from down here. It almost felt like that was like, but that's exactly why you have to talk about it. Cause he didn't yeah. deserve to feel ashamed about it. You know, the shame is the problem. The shame creates silence. And silence makes people die. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I remember Shiny saying something of like, don't you think that even if it had helped one person, that David would have wanted you to talk about? And I am. Um, I think that's true. From everything I know about him, yes. Yeah. 100%. And I think it's the same thing even talking about like anxiety or depression or whatever. If it helps one person, you know. And for my part, you know, there are <clears throat> there are programs that are not meant to be spoken about to help people that are not addicts themselves, mm-hmm. but love addicts. That are in, yeah. And are very easy to find if you Google them. Mm-hmm. 
so there are resources as well. If you're in the life, if you're if you're if you're if you're walking through life with somebody that's in that place, mm-hmm. you can very much find resources and resources that, that are, are free. free. That are free. I can't let you get out of here. Yes. I, there's so many projects I want to talk to you about that I can't. <laughs> It sucks. This is the worst part of my job. Is uh-huh. I'm like, ooh, tell me. Oh, you can't. Yeah. Um, but it was announced, and you recently, I've been trying to get you on the show forever, but I couldn't because you were filming something amazing for Apple's new streaming service. Yes. And it was announced that you are acting and writing yeah. on this project, and yes. you just finished doing it. Yeah. What can you fucking tell me about it? I don't know, man. I don't know what I can tell you. It still doesn't you. have a name. That's okay. It doesn't have a name. We it's, know uh, that the people involved. We, we know, know that Charlie involved. Day. We know that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Rob McElhenney, mm-hmm. Charlie Day. It's a production of theirs. It's being made with Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. It's about a game development company. There are so many fucking amazing people in it, and I love all of them. Yes. That might be all I can say, but, but the cast you has had, been announced. You had an exceptionally awesome time working on that show. Such a good time. We were talking about it before. That's not always the case. Not always the case. Which people, I mean, when you go on press tour, I'm sure everyone has to be like, oh, it's so much fun. Oh, we had all these on-set antics and everyone hates each other. Right, and you hear like 10 years later that it was just a A nightmare. nightmare. Yeah. This was truly, honestly, genuinely a complete dream. Mm. Like our uh, hair and makeup team, who were awesome also, were constantly saying like, you guys are so lucky. Yeah. Because like, Three of the other female leads uh, are we're all around the same age, and we fucking hang out. Yeah, like we just like being around each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. I got them all. Actually, this is the perfect place to talk about this for a rap gift. I got them all D and D dice. Oh, you did? Because none of them had played, and I was like, I want us to keep hanging out. So maybe Here's I'll a way run a campaign. Yes! Do it. I'm so bad at Do math. It. Though I don't care. Do it. Do it. I need to try to get. There's no Matt doesn't have any time. He's got so much time. He's got He'll totally three run a minutes game for of time. <laughs> Not run a game, but I wanted to ask him for tips and tricks. Oh, he's got time for that. I really want a dumbed down version, though, where I don't have to do so much math. This is my. You can totally do that. You can. can that's you? the thing about D&D is you can sort of customize How? it to fit. You just don't have to. I'm make reading it the handbook and they're like, uh, use this equation to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just mm-hmm. like sitting there <laughs> like. D and D is as much an excuse. It's it's, it's as much uh, a game that you want to play and you want to experience and whatever else. But it's also an excuse to just keep in touch and to, and yes. to, to have a regular thing where you get to hang with people and yeah. you get to go on an adventure together. Yes. that doesn't cost a ton of money. Right. Um, and you can just continue and, and enrich those relationships through. Absolutely. It. I think you should do it. I well, I've been reading. I need to like ask you guys for some help with like how I can because they've never played. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm barely a good player, and I've never DM'd. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's coming from the person who killed Molly. What are you talking about? I was like, time, to, time to you bring that up. You actually did very well. That wasn't like the first thing out of your mouth. I brought it up before yeah, the show. Yeah, you did. You brought it up We before. were walking in here, and we passed the critical role table, and I said, oh, look, that's where you were sitting when you killed Molly. <laughs> I'm never going to let you fucking let it down. I can't believe that was my first fucking day. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Yeah, the worst you had day the arc of, of uh, yeah, yeah. First then day of work. Then you came to Gen Con, and yeah, yeah. it was beautiful. I still kind of wish that I had killed him. I, I think Matt kind of wanted me to kill him, but it was also kind of perfect <laughs> that uh, not Molly, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know. uh, 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 Can we say spoilers for shit? People know. People know. Spoilers right? campaign two. Yeah, Lorenzo. Lorenzo. It did feel like Matt was trying to set it up so that I would. 
finish him off. But I think it's also proper if that someone the, in the if party. If that's the truth, you have to tell yourself after the fact to be okay with it. <laughs> then it's fine. I mean, it's written in canon forever, but I mean, like, whatever you need to say to get through the You know who will be a safe caretaker of the story while Laura and Travis are gone? We can Ashley trust Birch. Ashley Birch, our friend Ashley. Was it, uh, was it besides Hey Ashley, so right. we, we didn't get a ton of time to go into that stuff, but you've talked about so much before. Yeah, I'm tired of talking about Hey Ashley. It's <laughs> Not really, I love it. the first thing that you've um, acted in and and. Written, written for at the same time. That's uh, that's a uh, that is live action. I believe live so. action. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I believe so. Time, so. I mean, I you know for the for the Rocket Jump Hulu show, we wrote the shorts and did. Oh yeah, yeah, but yeah. But that yeah. also didn't feel. It kind of felt like Hey Ash, mm. and I mean, it, a very high budget Hey Ash, and I also <laughs> yeah, yeah. directed the short, which is a completely different experience. But but there was something about. Because there's also like Rocket Jump felt like a natural progression where they're like, ah, oh, yes, these are YouTube people that are kind of crossing the mm-hmm. threshold and we are YouTube people and whatever. But going into the situation where it's like, they made Always Sunny. That's just been a thing that has existed on television. Mm-hmm. It just felt like stepping into a completely different realm. And I'd yeah. never written for live action before. Yeah. You know, not like that. Not like, not in, like, a, that. Not like in a proper live mm-hmm. action writer's room. Mm-hmm. Which I was terrified about, by the way, especially because you hear so many horror stories. You but do, yeah. It was the funniest people of all time, but also so kind. And it was just fucking great. Everyone was so great. Like You're I, also very open to collaboration, so it, it makes sense you had a good experience. Yeah, I try yeah. to be. I definitely yeah. try to be. And I learned a lot. Yeah. Um, and Rob is a very, I really wish I could, I've said this a couple of times, but I, I wish I could photocopy him and put him as a showrunner. Because mm-hmm. he, he is the perfect mixture of having vision and... Openness. Yeah. Which you really need You're, both. It's rare, though. It's, it's rare to find. It's so rare. Because either people are control freaks or they have no idea what the fuck they're doing. They think that vision has to be adhered to to right. a T. So to have the vision and the openness is, is the like perfect the perfect mixture. combination. Makes and sense why you'd want to photocopy him. Yeah. I want to, yeah. I'll have a little cardboard standees <laughs> of Rob McElhinney. Uh And he also is like very serious about the job, but also knows that like we're not curing cancer. Mm-hmm. So, no one needs to get screamed at. Yeah. No one. There no, doesn't need to be any like crazy behavior. We're the stakes all, are not life threatening. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, we're all yeah. good people that are trying really hard to make something good. Yeah, and you might as well just have fun making it because that's it. the best part. Yeah. So yeah, it was a really really good experience. Mm. Um, I feel fucking crazy grateful. So grateful to have been a part of it. You're on a cool path. You're on yeah, a very thanks, cool man. path. You're carving out a lot of space for yourself, which I find interesting. I've always admired that about you. Is oh, like for you. how young you are. I'm almost 10 years older than you, dude. Are you? I'm 36 years old. You're 28, right? Yeah, I'm 28. You got so much to look forward to. <laughs> I was explaining to you earlier about how after you, the day you turn 30, hangovers become a three-day ordeal. Yep. I can't wait till you get God. there. Yeah, you're fine. I, mean, I you're know. Like, right now I can have three. You're set. Yeah. I know. It's going to be so immediate, too. I can tell. I, I just know. Yeah. My body. I'm going to be. You know how they have those jokes about Asian women that they look 20 until they hit 70? <laughs> and then they just crumble? <laughs> they just completely become like a Quasimodo? I don't I know like a ton of those jokes, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, maybe it's just. <laughs> you know this common joke that everyone knows about? Maybe it's just if you have an Asian mother. Uh, yeah. But uh, I feel like that's going to happen to me, but when mm-hmm. I'm 30. Physically. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, like, inside of me. I feel like I'll keep it together, but I'll feel like I'm hunchback. Yeah. Um, You're like the red woman. Ah, yes. Spoilers. Spoilers. It's all been out. It's out. It's out. It's out. Come on. Ashley, I love you. 
I look I forward to absolutely everything that your gigantic hands touch. <laughs> have we ever compared hands? Dude, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I have freakishly large hands. Wow, dude. Holy cow. Wait, you could fit both of them on my one hand. <laughs> Fuck trading haircuts. Let's trade hands for a day. <laughs> I want you to walk around with these hands for a day, and I want to walk around. I want to walk around with yours. My thanks to you, as always, for listening. You can watch the show live on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific at Twitch.tv/slash Critical Role, and they're also uploaded to YouTube on Wednesdays at YouTube.com/slash Critical Role. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or a review if you'd like. Until next time. Don't forget to love each other.